Hey, everybody, it's Jason. Hey, so uh, this week, the podcast might sound a little different, maybe sound a little old timey, like 1977 itself. We actually recorded this one before the pandemic, so we were all together. Obviously, now we're recording remotely, but that's why it might sound a little different to you. Also, we might have uh, said some things that are a little dated because we recorded it a couple of months ago, but it's still a worthwhile listen, we think. We hope you enjoy it. Onward and upward, here is a racer head. Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, cherry bomb. Cherry bomb. You're not a cherry bomber. You're just a cherry bomb. I mean, that's the, you could be, I guess, a cherry bomber, but I think a cherry bomb also describes someone. Yeah, like a that's firecracker a firecracker. Yeah, yeah, like that's that. fair. That's a song from the 70s, isn't it? Cherry yeah, bomb. That's the Runaways one. Oh, the Runaways. Oh, okay. Now this is going to be controversial. Yeah. And please. Write in and call. I would dare say that the 80s song by John Mellencamp, Cherry Bomb, was a better song. Okay. Got any thoughts on that? No, let's move on. Outside yes, the thank- club, no, no, Cherry no, Bomb. No, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have we given you an opening to sing. This was very bad. And in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the 70s. Yes. So we should stick with the 70s, Cherry Bomb. We are, in fact, talking about 1977. And in this episode, we are talking about the notable feature debut of a major filmmaker that we picked, and it is David Lynch's Eraserhead. Yes, it, it is a notable and a debut. <laughs> yes. And from the year 1977. Qualifies all the criteria. Checks off all the boxes, much more specific than last season when we changed the format to pick a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a that was a, a weird one. Yeah, but this is a weird one. This is a very mm-hmm. very very strange film from David Lynch. That was actually uh, a, it was a student film that he made at uh, the American Film Institute, and it kind of it premiered in 1977 at the FilmX Film Festival in Los Angeles in March 1977. But its release kind of trickled out over the next several years, really. Uh, playing at festivals and and midnight runs and art houses and things like that. So it was a very slow build to reach an audience. Yeah. And, you, you know, um, in college, uh, we used to go to the midnight movies. I think you probably did in Amherst. So I definitely did in Boston. That yeah, I think thing. they might have had them earlier than, than midnight because it was a small town. OK, so but, you know, but that was like the next wave of it where I was like, hey, this is what was cool to do in like the late 70s and early 80s. And you know, there's plenty of college kids who can't, who aren't 21. Let's give them a midnight movie. But uh, in the 70s, it was a huge thing. You know, all these college kids would go and find um, movies that they couldn't otherwise see playing at midnight. And, um, you know, Eraserhead had, had, did a, a year here or two years here. You know, it was a, it was a probably the quintessential that in uh, Pink Flamingos, I would say probably the two quintessential midnight movies yeah well i mean this is also the time rocky horror came out two years earlier sure, and that go. was real that's the quintessential midnight movie but touche sir yeah no but i think you're right about those other ones and and especially i mean rocky horror is kind of its own thing but those movies uh 
for John Waters and for David Lynch, that was the way that they built up a reputation and built up an audience. And these movies that were out there and they would spread the word of mouth. Oh my, you got to go see this crazy ass movie that I watched at midnight at this little theater. And we've talked about that before, how it's always fun to like find a movie that is hard to find and you can only go see it at X time at X place. And, uh, you know, the journey is uh, as rewarding as the destination, Josh. So true. Much like this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The journey to download and subscribe. The the journey of our discussion. Yeah. Real Uh, fast. I know you're going to get into it, but uh, there was this book, Midnight Movies from the Margin to the Mainstream. And it was about, uh, oh no, it was a documentary, I think. And the six that they went over were Night of the Living Dead, El Topo, Pink Flamingos, The Harder They Come, Rocky Horror, and Eraserhead. Yeah, that sounds about right. Those uh, all, I think, probably from around the same time and and built up their audiences that way. So yeah, I mean, it's played at, at, at various festivals. I noted down that it played at the BFI London Film Festival in 1978, was kind of the, the biggest name festival that it ended up at. Well, it played Telluride in like 86 or something. Oh yeah, that yeah. was that was l- much later. Yeah. And and once David Lynch directed The Elephant Man, it kind of got a resurgence in, in release and in business, because um, right. that was obviously a much more high profile film. And Wikipedia claims, uh, quoting the numbers, that it grossed $7 million, which seems like a lot to me. And I assume that includes like re-releases over the next several decades, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, considering it was a student film and he had to patchwork it together and starts and stops and a lot of friends would be donating funds. uh, I think we can all say that's a highly successful film. Right. Well, I just meant it seems like a lot in terms of like, I don't know if I believe it but i suppose if you add in all the releases over time that it could it could get to that Well, like i was saying cinema village in la one year the waverly cinema in new york 99 weeks the roxy theater in san francisco one year new art theater in la three years so i mean you know all that adds up yeah i suppose that's true um midnight showings the midnight showings yeah i mean even with ticket prices being much lower than i guess you know it could it could get you to seven million so yeah, I don't know what exactly the budget was of this. I mean, they probably don't actually know because of the way that it was cobbled together, like you said, over a period of years. But I'm sure it was not very much. Was yeah, a- I mean, and and we know he got um, the locations for free because they were owned by AFI. So there was a lot of, and the crew is minimal, like a five-person crew. Right, it's most, you watch the credits of this movie. And, and like a lot of student films, even now, it's like, Director, David Lynch. Writer, David Lynch. Producer, David Lynch. Set design, David yeah. Lynch. You know, he really did everything on this movie, yes. pretty much. I'll take out uh, set design, but I'll give you editor, score, and sound design. Yeah, that's... Uh, did he not design the sets or co-design the sets? I think he might have... Uh, was it Jack... What, what oh, Jack Fisk. Yeah, yeah was, is credited. Who, yeah, and his, his wife, who was a waitress, kept giving her... Uh, salary to make this movie. Right, right. Sissy Spacek was yeah. his wife uh, and still is actually. Um, How about that? Yeah, amazing in Hollywood. But uh, yeah, David Lynch uh, what uh, delivered newspapers. And I mean, right. it's the story of a lot of these scrappy low-budget films, even now, the way that people scrape everything together or, you know, the stories like Kevin Smith putting clerks on all his credit cards and things right, like that. Right. I mean, you do what you have to do. Robert Townsend with the Hollywood shuffle was always a famous one in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it pays off. Well, you don't ever hear the stories about uh, the filmmakers who did that, and then they made a terrible movie that no one saw, and they went bankrupt. No, you hear about the guys like Ed Burns. Oh, no. Who say, <laughs> if, I only, if I only get 12 days every 25 years for 25 grand, 
I'm going to do it, you know, yeah. and then he becomes Ed Burns. Ed so. Burns, the David Lynch of the 90s, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, so despite building up that cult following and, and, and reviews of this movie, it was a bit difficult to find, in part because they really just trickled out over the period of years when the movie would have an established run somewhere. Like the New York Times didn't review it until 1980. But critics seemed like they didn't quite know what to make of this movie. And, and that's fair. Yes, that you know, is that is fair. I'm not always nice to, to the critics, but I'll agree with that one. <laughs> so. Yeah. So um, the New York Times was negative. I wasn't able to get that full review, but I want to. I'll start with this one from Variety, which is uh, uncredited. I think at the time Variety didn't byline any reviews, so this is just the Variety staff review, and this is actually from 1977. Eraserhead is a sickening bad taste exercise made by David Lynch under the auspices of the American Film Institute. Set apparently in some undefined apocalyptic future era, Eraserhead consists mostly of a man sitting in a room trying to figure out what to do with his horribly mutated child. Lynch keeps throwing in graphic close-ups of the piteous creature and pulls out all gory stops in the unwatchable climax. Like a lot of AFI efforts, the pick has good tech values, particularly the inventive sound mixing, but little substance or subtlety. The mind boggles to learn that Lynch labored on this pick for five years. So they just pretty harsh. Man. They are very harsh. Yeah. Also, I don't. I mean, I, I didn't place it as futuristic. Yeah, I didn't really either. And I think Lynch has talked about it was inspired by the time that he spent living in Philadelphia and presumably, uh, you know, not not very well off neighborhood. So right where he was. Uh, yeah, he he just saw the. Uh, I don't even want to call him the dregs, but like you know, uh, just people who were really down on their luck, shall we say. Right, right. And obviously they didn't all have mutant babies, but you can see that as a reflection in here. And I mean, it's not it's not a realistic movie in any way, So, but it doesn't have to be a, no, a future. No, but you know, when you see people who fall through the cracks of society, it's it can be very rough. Right, know? absolutely. What I'm saying is that just because it's surreal and doesn't reflect reality doesn't mean that it has to be an apocalyptic future. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Newsweek, um, and this is, I, I think, in part from like a more of a feature story. This is from 1978. Jack Knoll in Newsweek said, Lynch comes amazingly close to the logic of dreams and nightmares in which successive layers of reality seem to dissolve, sucking you into a terrifying vortex. The movie clearly deals with an apocalypse, but the apocalypse is not external, not political or technological. It is internal, the ultimate corruption of matter itself throughout the universe. So I can sort of buy that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that, again, that's actually positive. I didn't, the, the variety is the most toxic review that I threw yeah, in Yeah, the internal apocalypse. I mean, it seemed like every character was going through uh, uh, enormous amounts of conflict. Yes. <laughs> A lot of turmoil in their inner souls in this movie. Storm and Drang. Sure, sure, sure. And then I'm not sure the exact date of this. This is uh, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker as collected in her book. Um, I think it's called 5001 Nights the Movies. David Lynch seems to have reinvented the experimental film movement. Watching this daringly irrational movie with its interest in dream logic, you almost feel that you're seeing a European avant-garde gothic of the 20s or early 30s. There are images that recall Fritz Long's M and Cocteau's Blood of a Poet and Bunuel's Un Chien Andalou, and yet there is a completely new sensibility at work. Lynch pulls you inside wormy states of anxiety. Henry, that's the main character, appears to come out of the viewer's subconscious. He experiences a man's worst fears of courtship and marriage and fatherhood, 
to a whimpering monster. The slow, strange rhythm is very unsettling and takes some getting used to, but it's an altogether amazing, sensuous film. It even has an element of science fiction and some creepy musical numbers, and the soundtrack is as original and peculiar as the imagery. So she also got a sci-fi vibe out of it. Yeah, I, um, the courtship element was minimal, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the scene where he meets, uh, uh, what's her name, Mary's uh, Mary parents? Mary's parents. Yeah. She's like, yeah, you know, the mom's like, did you have sexual relations with my daughter and then tries to make out with him? Yeah, know? or make out with him or just kind of like lick his neck or something, yeah. it seems like. But I will say, um, I mean, Unshan Andalu was definitely the movie that I placed it closest with, even though a lot of people uh, or the reviews that I was kind of looking at were like, yes, it's surrealist, like in like Boonwell, but this is a much more internal conflict than like some of the Boonwell stuff. So. Right. And the Boonwell, I haven't actually seen Unshan Andalu, but I've seen other Boonwell and I feel like his stuff is also a lot more like political you know, making using that surrealism to comment on on social issues. And I don't think Lynch has any interest in that. But, that, but I do think that's great is like, you know, we're taking in, uh, an inspiration and uh, personalizing it in a different way. And you should see in Shannon Delu. I should. And isn't only like 10 minutes long or something. I don't remember, but it's it's uh, I don't remember the length, but I remember the movie pretty well. And I haven't probably seen it in 20 years. So, yeah, it sticks with you. Right. So. I'm sure. I mean, I've seen various. Im- I mean, there's obviously one very, very, very yeah. famous image that I've seen. The eyeball. The eyeball. Yes. Yeah. The eyeball. So um, had you ever seen this movie before? I had never seen this movie. Had you? No, I never have. I'd seen other Lynch movies, but this was one that I'd, I'd been meaning to see. This was probably in my, you know, Netflix DVD queue from 10 years ago, and I just never have gotten to and it. And what a side benefit of the podcast, Josh. Right. We'll finally get to fill in some of the cracks that we've left in our own film education. That is true. And maybe we can provide a little of that for our listeners as well. So hopefully we inspired some people to watch Eraserhead before listening to this Or podcast. at least UHF last year. Well, I mean, they're last of season. equal stature. So yeah, well, I hope that, that people would get to them. Uh, Dave, had you ever seen this? I don't think I had. And yeah, it was it was great to finally catch it. Because, Dave watched it. All yeah, right. Yeah, I, did, I did watch this one. And I, it's something I've always wanted to to watch whether I had seen it or not. Right. Yeah. I mean, I felt that I felt the same way. It was definitely something I always wanted to watch. I had liked a lot of other David Lynch movies, yeah. although I haven't actually watched a Lynch movie in probably since 2001 when I saw Mulholland Drive in theaters. So uh, it's been a while since I saw anything that he's done. Well, I think even if you didn't know anything about this movie other than by David Lynch, the, the design, the posters that we all saw, you know, in college dorms and everywhere. Yeah, yeah. There's one image in the movie of uh, of Henry kind of backlit with the dust surrounding yeah. him and the hair that like it just shows up everywhere. It's and funny. It's I was awesome. waiting the whole time for that shot. Yeah, uh, I was. I was, I was yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting the whole time for you to get your hair that high because you have the potential. <laughs> Commenting on Dave's hair, it's and I did love that that over the. I don't know if you saw this detail, but because the movie took uh, almost five years to shoot, that he the, kept his hair. That yeah, way for Jack, five years. Jack Nance, the the star of the movie, really was committed to being a racer head, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's dedication right there. Yeah, I I've seen some of his stuff, uh, including uh, what would. What did Jack do? Oh, right. The uh, the short film on Netflix that just came out. Yeah. Did you guys watch that? I haven't seen that. I should. It's great. Uh, It's to me, it was like it's it's funny and it's so specific, his dialogue. And it's, you know, it's him interrogating a monkey detective pretty much as another detective on a train. But I felt like it could have been four and a half minutes instead of 17 minutes. 
which uh, interestingly enough, as you might have read, uh, when Lynch was pitching this to the AFI brass, he gave him a 21 page script, a 22 page script. So they're like, oh, cool. Who threw a 21 minute movie? And then they're like very shocked that it uh, clocked in at uh, the original cut almost an hour and 50. And then he chopped it to 89 minutes. Yeah. And I kind of feel like I would have liked this more if it was 21 minutes long, honestly. Well, that's fair. And maybe we should talk about your thoughts on it. We will when we come back and talk our general thoughts on Eraserhead. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we are talking about the feature film debut of David Lynch, Eraserhead. And this movie is a classic. But I did not get into it. Mm. I wanted to. I feel like I'm I'm some sort of philistine because I didn't. But and I've liked other David Lynch movies. I like movies that are surreal and nonsensical, which this is. I mean, we could recount the plot, but I mean, what even is the plot? Um, Look, name a uh, surrealist film that you really like. Oh, man, now you're just going to like put me on the spot. I mean, I would say I really like other David Lynch movies like yeah. Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, although it has been a very long time since I saw I them. I guess you could say 12 Monkeys kind of. Yeah, Gilliam's yeah. stuff is yeah. a bit surreal, although I think it has more strides. 12 Monkeys is probably one of the most structured Straight, yeah. Gilliam movies, actually. Well, I mean, like I really enjoyed the, Bar- the Adventures of Baron Munchausen that we talked about last season, which I know you didn't like. Um, that was also much more structured than this one. Yes, it was, although less structured than 12 Monkeys. I think, you know, uh, Dave's buddy up in Canada, Gaspar Noel, right? So, oh, yeah. Gas- <laughs> he's not in Canada. He's French. Yeah, France. from France. He's not French Canadian? No, he's no, French French. 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 Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, I would say the one Gaspar Noel, the climax, the movie that Dave loves so much, I, I absolutely hate it. Yeah. So maybe that's a that's bad example. That's kind of what I think about lately. Yeah, I mean, that is a very surreal movie. Um, I don't know. I think like uh, Ty West a little bit, the horror director, his movies are kind of surreal and, and, and slow. And uh, well, I mean, honestly, my favorite movie of 2019, Sunset, the Laszlo Nemes film is is very surreal and you'd, you'd be hard pressed to say what the plot really is. And I found that movie fascinating for close to two and a half hours. So I feel like I can get into movies like this. It's just this one I didn't. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's relentless was one of the words that was used <laughs> in one of the uh, reviews, maybe, I think. But, uh, and and yeah. it is. It is. It is unrelenting. Uh, but uh beautiful i mean you know it looks amazing the black and white and yeah. how stark it is and um even like i just like watching the shots of him walking uh in these empty uh, urban sprawls and whatnot and um you know i mean i know it's well regarded for its sound design and and that was pretty incredible i thought yeah the sound design is is great and often i think creates that feeling of unease even without you like noticing specific sounds just because they layer so much in there. Um, But certainly there's the scene that we were talking about earlier where, where uh, Henry, the main character played by Jack Nance goes to his girlfriend, I guess, Mary's house to meet her parents. And he's sitting on the couch there awkwardly with her and her mother. And you hear these, these, I don't even know what you would call the sounds yeah, constantly. Not, and that there's like sort of whiny sounds in the background. Yeah. Much like Dave's cat. right? <laughs> yes. Now. Yeah. It is kind of that. <laughs> I wish we could, the audience could hear this cat. It, it sounds like the, uh, um, 
mutated <laughs> baby of uh, Henry. At this point. Yeah, it does a little bit. I don't but, know what her problem is. But yeah, no, that scene and, and it's dogs like nursing. Right. And I, I think, thought it was like rats or mice. Right. I and I think what's great about that is you hear the sound first and you're like, what is this horrific thing that's making this sound? Yeah. And it's puppies. Right. And that's kind of great because Lynch is getting you to be horrified by puppies. Well, yeah, well, we, you know, we talked about uh, sound design in our Sex, Lies, and Videotape episode and how effective it can be. And I think this is, um, you know, the idea of layering 15 sounds over each other. And it was uh, him and Alan Splett as uh, the sound design team. They worked a year on the audio after production was done just to get it to where they thought it needed to be. So um, it was, it was um, mood-inducing. And that whole sequence that you're talking about where he goes to marry exes who lives with her parents is uh, one insane thing after the next, right? Yeah. You got a dad who's a plumber and uh, is cooking man-made uh, tiny chickens. And uh, he has Henry um, butcher these chickens. and with Well, not butcher them. I mean, they're already... They carve just the chicken. Carve the chicken after it's cooked. Yeah, and then it just blurts out what we assume to be blood. Oh yeah. Who knows? There's, what? A, there's so many fluids splurting yeah. throughout this movie and Lord knows what any of them are. Yeah. Really. There's the old lady who we're guessing is a grandma who just sits and uh, the mom goes and makes the salad bowl, like on her lap behind her and lights a cigarette for her, you know? And then as we've said, there's the reveal that Henry and Mary X have a baby and the mom uh, is, feels the proper responses to come on to Henry. <laughs> Well, but then also insist that he he gets married to Mary. But yeah. yeah, and probably the best line or the funniest line in the movie is when the mom, you know, tells Mary, you know, she got the baby is at the hospital or something. And Mary says, but they don't even know if it is a baby. Right. <laughs> yeah. what, what a thing to say. And then, of course, you see it and you think well, that was an accurate way to describe it. I thought also it was funny when um, he asked when the dad asked Henry to carve the uh, the chickens and he hands them like this huge carving knife for these little tiny chickens. That was pretty funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's funny moments or just humor in the weirdness of this movie, but honestly, as much as you're right, that it is, it's impressively designed. I mean, the sound and also the sets and the, the way that it looks, the, especially on such limited resources, but I just found so much of it just tedious to watch. And I wonder if you're right. Like if it was a, 12 minute movie you know would i have gotten the same thing out of it right and um you know as i do in uh my middle age josh mm. i uh I sometimes start and stop on these films yeah you fall asleep a lot during the movie i didn't fall asleep but i oh, okay i sometimes need breaks to replenish the energy and yeah get back into it and i think in this regard it was helpful because it was like three clean half hours that i could watch this film which i'm sure pisses a lot of uh, film traditionalists off. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I did take a bit of a break in the middle of this movie uh, for for a little while because it was, and I was watching it like extremely late at night before going to bed, and I was really tired, and so it's like really just already. I feel like I'm in a half dream world, and then ended up watching this movie. And Dave, what do you think? Do you think the it would have mattered if it was a short film versus this? I think you two are amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what I was worried. But I feel like I would have liked this more as a short film. And I've seen, you know, going to like, well, you and I both have gone to the damn short film festival in Boulder City near here in, in Vegas. And I feel like I've seen a lot of surrealist 
short films that I will enjoy because it's okay for 12 minutes or whatever to just be like, I don't know what this is, but it's got a bunch of cool images and I'm kind of digging it and then it's over. But to sit through that for nine, nearly 90 minutes, for me at least, was just too much. You are right, Josh. I was in one of those films, as you well know. You were in a few of those films yeah. over time and have directed them, but no. Not, no, I'm talking about the Surrealist show. Oh, yeah. Films, I, I uh, actually, yes. I was going to even bring up uh, our, our friend, friend Tom Barnes. Who's a very talented filmmaker out here in Las Vegas and makes these absolutely insane kind of surrealist. You can see the influence of David oh, yeah. Sean on Tom. And uh, he's so talented. Like, I wonder what would happen if he made a feature. Right. And I think he was at one point going to, and that never happened. And as much as I I love those movies, those shorts that he made, and I was excited at the prospect of him making a feature, but I do wonder if that would have worked as well, if he had done the same kind of thing for 90 minutes, or I might've been like, oh, this doesn't really sustain itself for this long. Yeah. Well, and then part of that is that um, the nature, I guess, of surrealism is we're used to watching things with linear plots or even if it's nonlinear plots that are followable. Right. I mean, yeah. and there is a plot of sorts to this movie. It's not just right. random imagery. We, we've already kind of, uh, well, we haven't talked about the first four minutes of the film, which yeah, I, which is the conception of the mutant baby. Maybe. Yeah. That's, I guess after like reading afterwards about it, that's what it seemed to be. But like, you know, um, and then there's that, there's a point in the, film where we see the baby getting sick and having like those sores and i was like okay well the guy we saw at the beginning had the sores so maybe that is what the mutant baby turns into right and we see him again at the end of the movie right but um probably not since spoiler alert henry murders the baby so right although (laughs) even after henry murders the baby the baby maybe isn't dead right because it grows into this enormous Maybe he freed the baby. And also maybe he is the baby. That's the other thing that we see at the end. That there's there's moments where he his head is replaced by the babies. And that's why that's why I uh induced why he murdered the baby because he had this, you know, whatever uh, dream or hellish nightmare that the baby is gonna replace him or Right, has decapitated him. Yeah. Yeah, I sure. And then his decapitated head. A boy finds it on the street and brings it to an eraser factory. And uh, well, it's a pen, I mean the pencil pencils. factory, and yeah. his head becomes erasers. erasers. Yeah, it's eraser head. Yeah, but that that scene was pretty funny. Where uh, the guy where he's at the counter and like he's ringing for the bell, and the boss comes in. And he's like, "All right, I got it." You know, and, you know that was a weird, funny. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some funny bits, I guess, but I don't know. I this, just look. It's not for you. This one. I guess not. And I thought it was for me. That's the thing is that I was thought this is a movie I'm going to really be into. And it just, it, I just was not. So uh, I wanted to ask you though, because this movie is always, is often said to be about the anxieties of, uh, of fatherhood. Did you resonate with that at all? Not, not at all. Okay. I, I like being a dad though. So yeah, but I did read all that stuff about, you know, he had the daughter who had club feet and um, it's, you know, I mean, that's gotta be so much tougher. You know, sure. Being a parent's tough on its own, but having to raise a child with any type of disability is going to be tougher. And um, but yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't. I got that from him. Like, but I don't ever feel that way. No. Okay. So. Fair enough. The the baby does look amazing. Crazy, and uh, he never. He will never reveal, or never has revealed, how he created the uh, the the creature. 
Right. Which is, I mean, again, is another one of these things that on the budget that must have been minuscule right. to create something like that, that looks, I mean, that looks as scary as anything in any horror movie. Right. It's, uh, I was reading like maybe it's a uh, em- embalmed lamb embryo. That was one but, of the- And it also, but like it sneaky, moves, like yeah. its mouth moves yeah. and it's- Right. And none of those things could move independent of each other. The, the neck, the mouth, the eyes, they all had to move at the same time. Yeah. Pretty, pretty awesome for a student filmmaker. Right. It looks amazing. I mean, it reminded me a little of like the, the chest burster in Alien, you know, right. sort of the embryonic form of the alien which is uh, a couple years later. So I don't know if there's an, any potential influence from this on on H.R. Geiger and Ridley Scott. Well, but. we know H.R. Geiger has been influenced by it so much so that didn't David Lynch say he was stealing his ideas? Oh, I don't know. I hadn't had I hadn't heard that. I but so. It's, maybe so. I, I would believe it after seeing that creature and having seen Alien. They, they have a lot of similarities to them, certainly, I visually. Thought, I thought that was a big thing. Yeah, you, know? you could be right. I don't know. I hadn't, I hadn't read that anywhere. Um, but either way, I mean, that baby is, is unsettling to watch. And especially when it gets, as you were talking about, those like sores on it. Yeah. And just, just the shots of the, like the close-up shots of the baby covered in those sores are just viscerally it's, like it's, unpleasant. It's hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah, there's a quote from Geiger. I don't have it exactly, but he had said when he watched Eraserhead that he thought, David Lynch did a better job of getting inside his head than he could do and getting inside his own head. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So then I guess he, he was influenced and you can see how that would could be almost like a starting point. And then Geiger takes it in this more monstrous, dangerous direction. And of course, in the context of a, a Hollywood science fiction movie that, that has, that has a linear plot and where you have to understand what the monster is and well, stuff like go, that. Let's go back. And yes. you know, did you like, um, the Metamorphosis when you read it, Kafka? I don't know that I read The Metamorphosis. And you graduated high school. <laughs> and I graduated college, both. Yeah, the, I might have read it. I'm not sure. The three literary influences that I, uh, was, uh, that I had read about were The Metamorphosis, which I, which I have read. Oh, congratulations. Uh, uh, Nikolai Gogol's The Nose about a nose that comes off a man's face and develops a life of his own. Yeah, I think I read some other Gogol maybe in a Russian yeah. lit class, but not that. And then one Bible verse. He's like, I read one Bible verse. It all came together and I shut the Bible. <laughs> that's that's a very David Lynch <laughs> yeah. kind of thing to say. And right. I mean, David Lynch too is, I mean, obviously he's a very weird guy, but I think Lynch is also like a guy who uh, enjoys the idea of messing with like it, journalists and and fans and stuff. So you have to wonder like half the time the things that he says whether he's like sincere about them. It's very not. subversive. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I thought those uh, those were interesting things. Few other things um, that would be worth noting was it's in the National Film Registry. We know that. Yeah, I mean it's a movie regardless of our opinion that like is a landmark in film history. Yeah, and I mean. You know, not to go too much into the legacy because that's our next section, but uh, the Online Film Critics Society ranked it as the second best debut film ever. Are you a member of the Online Film Critics Society? I am not, but, you know, their list of the best debut films ever (laughs) is is really... It's a big deal. I assume it's number two behind Citizen Kane. Yeah, you were right. You could be a member of the Online Film (laughs) Wow, if that's my qualification. Um, Yeah, so uh, what did... I just um, I'm You're trying to formulate a thought here, and it's not it's not happening. Dave, what 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 were your thoughts on the film, Dave? 
Uh, I liked it. I I was um. It's one of those one of those classics that when you go back to and immediately see, you know, especially with my piecing it together, looking at inspirations, it's like I immediately saw so many things that you know, if I was doing, have inspired it, yeah, or it was inspired, yeah, yeah. That's that's way to tie it into your podcast, right? No, but I mean, he's right, and I think that's that's what I'm saying is that even if I kind of wasn't into the experience of watching it, I can see how important it is, how influential it is. And how much of an achievement it is, especially as a student film. I mean, uh, if you're a film student and you watch this movie, you're just you just give up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And as we've noted, it has influenced Dave's cats to, <laughs> to like yes to, to howl and whine like the puppies in Eraserhead. Uh, did you like the song, the the David Lynch written song that the lady in the radiator sings? David Lynch did. Uh, did he write it? I thought he wrote the was... lyrics to it. I yeah, think, and maybe okay. the melody. And he is a musician. I mean, right. he's released albums later on, and yeah. he he was a co-creator yeah, in, of In Heaven. It was like, you know, it's like a '40s style yeah. jazzy kind of thing. That was the yeah. most disturbing part. I thought for some reason it was just yeah. So I, it was was it him and Peter Ivers who wrote that together, or did Peter Ivers write that? Song? I think uh, that's the the composer wrote yeah. the music, and Lynch wrote the lyrics. I liked it, and what I really like about it. Is uh, it's it's often covered by the Pixies in concert. Oh, really? Yeah, That's awesome. Pixies. Yeah, I'm a big Pixies fan. Right, you know, right. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it's 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 disturbing and it's 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 cool that you can take something like that, like '40s, you know, kind of uh, jazzy, poppy song, and make it into something unsettling, just like puppies. You know, think something that you think is nice, and it just turns Dave's out cats. and Dave's cats, and it just turns out to be turns out to be disturbing. So I wasn't sure why the lady in the radiator had the big chipmunk cheeks. Yeah. And also I was confused that I think I didn't realize that she and Mary were not the same person. I could see the confusion at first, but then I think it became more clear as you went on. Yeah, I had to, it took me until the credits. And when I realized that there were two different actors credited for those roles that I was like, okay, they're definitely not the same person. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know, to a few facts about, because of how long it took to film, you know, uh, Lynch had to sleep in the in Henry's bedroom for like a year while he was trying to make the movie, which has got to be disturbing. I mean, know? I feel like, though, again, David Lynch, he probably was like really into that. Yeah, you might be right. Then I also like the fact that like there's a scene where Henry opens the door and goes into a room and it's supposed to take place like like over a year and it literally took him that long to film to like the shot they made of the him opening the door and then they couldn't film the actual entry into the room until a year later because of their right. budgetary problems. Right. So. But I will say that like sometimes you can watch movies that were shot over a long period of time or that had like later reshoots. You can see the difference. Yeah. And this movie is seamless. It really is. Right. And then one other fun thing about the production of this was, um, you know, they're running out of money. They're running out of money. And uh, Terrence Malick presented it, you know, uh, Terrence Malick. I mean, on. who was another AFI graduate? Right. He's an AFI, you know, he's as big as they get, you know? Right. And Although, I mean, at this time, he was just starting out, too. He had still, I mean, 77. So he had done Badlands before this, I think. I and think, maybe one other. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. he wasn't like what he is now. Sure. But he was well regarded. And he had presented it to a potential investor and the guy was like, you, this is bullshit. And he like left stormed out of the room. I mean, I can absolutely see that because this isn't a movie, even though it became a classic, this isn't a movie that you look at and you think dollar signs, you know? Right. Did you read anything from uh, 
Greg Olson, who I think was like the co-author of Lynch's autobiography. I did not. I thought there was a good quote about because you know he grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Lynch did. Yeah. yeah. And it was great in Montana and very nice. And then, you know, we talked about his move to Philadelphia and like how horrible that was. And uh, Olson has this um kind of quote on how it um it's a bipolar heaven and hell vision of of America, which kind of not only you see in this, but in a lot of Lynch's work. Yeah, although I what is the heaven part of it? I'm not sure I got that. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can see that maybe in some of other Lynch's other works, especially like Twin Peaks, where it's like, you know, the or Blue Blue Velvet too, where it's like the idyllic small town that seems heavenly. But it's this movie doesn't even have a part where like things seem to be going well and then they go awry. Like it, nothing is going well from the start of this movie. Nope. No, it's a dark one. I mean, I guess you could argue that uh, Henry is on vacation, as you know, it's multiple <laughs> times and that's nice. But uh, did you know. take that as him being on, on vacation or him being laid off? I mean, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of funny. Again, when when someone asks him when his Mary's dad or mother says, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm on vacation. Yeah. Like, that's his job is being on vacation. The last character we probably should mention is the next door neighbor, the uh, sultry, you know, sex pot next door neighbor. Who, yes. Uh, he has a one night stand with maybe. Probably. And then she sinks into a pool of something. And then he wants more with her and she's already with another man. And it kind of sets him off to murder his spawn. Yes, that is one way to look at it. But, yeah. but right. I mean, it's not a clear at any point what is actually happening or whether it even matters what is, quote, actually happening. I mean, the right. whole thing is just a surreal, like, fever dream anyway. So, right. I mean, that was my and I guess I, I sort of felt like at a certain point, like none of this really matters. Like, I would like this. Maybe movie. that's the point. I mean, I suppose it is, but it just was hard for me to get into. I feel like if this was an art installation and I was in a museum and I walked by a monitor showing this, like, and I just watched like five. No, I just like watched five minutes in the middle of it. I would be like, wow, this is really cool looking. But I wouldn't feel like I had to care about it for 90 minutes or be invested in anything that happens. And I would just enjoy the imagery of it. And I think that's a great thought and uh, one we should sum up this segment with. All right. So do you want to rate this out of five uh, mutant babies? I was hoping we would go with some I mean, it seems like we, the obvious one. I know we were going to do, did we do aborted fetuses for four months? I think we've done, you know, fetus. Yeah, yeah, we have done that. A lot of recurring of, themes on lot, A lot show. of fetus stuff in uh, Juno and this and at least one other one. I mean, I guess I give it two and a half, which I don't know if I feel good about because like you're saying, it didn't really do anything for me from a story standpoint. Although I could see, as Dave might be happy to hear, if you had seen this in a theater experience and got all the reactions of other yeah, people at the same yeah. time, like how that could elevate the experience, you know? Um, but I, if you rated it any lower, I think you're doing a disservice to the technical merits of the film. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I actually did rate it lower on Letterboxd. I gave it two, but... But I think you're right that you have to give it credit for so much. And, and just because our personal reactions were not strong doesn't mean that it's not an important or a, a, right. an accomplishment. So I will bump it up to two and a half mutant babies. All right. Uh, Dave, I think you like this more than we did. Yeah, I gave it three and a half mutant babies. I, I agree with most of your criticisms. I just, you know, it's just so weird and cool that I still really enjoyed it. You yeah. know, this is what I like when Dave watches the movie because he keeps throwing us for curveballs with like, you think he's going to say this? 
Then we get to the rating and it's totally out of nowhere. Amazing. <laughs> Dave is the most sophisticated of us all in uh, regards to a racer head. And, in uh, regards to mutant baby ratings. He, uh, that, yeah. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Eraserhead. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we are talking about the feature debut of filmmaker David Lynch, Eraserhead, and... As far as the legacy goes, I mean, we've talked about this a bit. This movie is incredibly influential just in general. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, every modern surrealist uh, piece of uh, film owes a debt to this one, I'd say. Yeah. And and like I was saying, you know, going to like film festivals and seeing short films. And I think there's a lot more surrealist short films than there are uh, features because it's the kind of thing where if you're just going to make a short movie, you can just throw a bunch of weird stuff together and say, oh, it's surreal. But you can see the influence of Eraserhead throughout film festival programs. And let's look at the fans, the famous fans of it. You know, Kubrick loved it, showed it to the cast and crew of The Shining and said, this is kind of what I'm going for here. You know, John Waters, our, uh, you know, one of the other midnight movie uh, pioneers, loved it. And then my, obviously, and I love this so much, people don't re- realize because he's, you know, such a comedic icon. Mel Brooks was the producer of the elephant man oh, right. Brooks films and you know bell brooks's oscar for best picture is for the elephant man you know and he saw this and they offered lynch a few different ideas but one of them was the elephant man which i think is amazing like that mel brooks you know kind of saw a racer and was like this is our guy you right know? right um and then uh lastly George Lucas liked it and uh, supposedly offered him Return of the Jedi. Oh, he, wow. Yeah, I mean, and I can no. see if you see uh, THX 1138, uh, George Lucas's first film, which is very surreal, like you could see uh, elements of, of Eraserhead being yeah. influential on that. I think, you know, the one filmmaker that we didn't mention, Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky would be a highly yeah, influenced. By absolutely. It. Pi is very, 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 very influenced yeah. by this. And, and speaking of what you were saying about Mel Brooks, to me, what is was sort of fascinating about this is that now we think of Lynch as a guy who makes stuff like this. I mean, the, the more recent Lynch work, like the short film on Netflix, the third season of Twin Peaks, or even going back to Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway, all of that stuff is very surreal and strange and very Eraserhead-like. But the immediate reaction to the success of this movie was that he got offered Hollywood stuff, that he did The Elephant Man, and then he did Dune. There were these big mainstream productions. And it's sort of almost hilarious to me that anyone could watch this movie and say, you know what? This guy, let's hire him to make a blockbuster. Well, yeah, that is a good that is a good point about like the Elephant Man, which probably wouldn't be made today anyway. I haven't know? actually seen it, have you? Um, I've seen it, but like just kind of in bits and pieces. I need to do a full sitting of yeah, it. Yeah, and I haven't seen Dune either. I've only again, I've seen the later Lynch movies where he had already been established as like guy who makes weird art right. movies. But um, you know who I was thinking of? Who did Primer? What's that guy's name? Oh yeah, Shane Carruth. Right. Shane Carruth. That would be like if you watch Primer and you're like, Shane Carruth, why don't you uh, take on this fun yarn of a time travel tale? You know, right. Exactly. Like, let's hire Shane Carruth to direct a Marvel movie or something. Right. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't around the world in 80 days by Shane Carruth. You know, (laughs) that would be funny. But um, the the point is Mel Brooks genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and, hey, good for Mel Brooks and, and good for David Lynch for getting those opportunities. And obviously, I mean, at least in terms of Dune, that movie was a a giant failure and it kind of set him on the path to doing 
the weird stuff that he probably should have always been doing. Yeah, he's become Lynch has become more of an on-screen presence too now. You know, he's he acted in that what what did Jack do? And um, you know, he had a great turn. I I know we're not allowed to remember that this was an actual TV show, but he was great in Louie when he played uh uh when Louis C.K. was going to take over Dave Letterman's show and he yeah. played like the old school TV executive who was like coaching him. He did a great job in that. He did. And I feel like he's a little, not to the same extent, but like Werner Herzog, he's sort of become this pop culture figure yes. because of his weird personality. I mean, dude, did you just create the best buddy comedy for <laughs> David CBS Lynch and Friday Werner night? Herzog? Yeah. Yes. Like the two grandpas who are down on, they could even be filmmakers. Like we were once famous. We were once famous filmmakers. And then the economy burst. And now we live in our own <laughs> apocalypse. Fever dream. Right? Yeah. That would be amazing. That would be <laughs> insane. But yeah, he has this mesmerizing presence. The one thing I always remember, so as, as of course we said, David Lynch, he's an AFI graduate. This was an AFI film. And I think one of the legacies of this movie is establishing AFI as this like major presence, the, the conservatory or the, the school, the film school of uh, AFI wasn't established until 1969. So it was still relatively new yeah. and for something coming out of this. But I, uh, I used to attend the AFI film festival for a number of years. And, you know, like at any film festival, they have a little pre-show thing that you end up seeing at every screening. Right. And one year it was David Lynch kind of introducing the festival in his very David Lynch way. And he talks about I forget what exactly he said, but you know, it's something about all the stuff that the American Film Institute does. And at the end he says, I love AFI <laughs> oh, and is very like Lynchian, like, like Coneheads way. And I probably went to, you know, 15 screenings at that festival that year. And every time you hear him say that the audience was cracking up. That's good. You know, one, as we mentioned, Pixies. Yes. A black Francis really loves this. Cause uh, he, you know, his other group, Frank Black and the Catholics, the song I got to move was kind of uh, inspired by this as well. Okay. So, yeah, I would be curious to hear that Pixies cover of the weird song from this movie. I That's so I've, funny. I've seen them so. Uh, do they just times. do it live, or I is there a recorded? I, yeah, version? I think so. I'm. I think I must have seen it. But um, the you know one other thing, and once in a while we come across one of these movies where like it's got like these all these tragedies connected to it. Did you read about any of that stuff? No, no, I didn't. Okay, so uh, starting with our man Henry, you know. Yeah, Jack, Jack Nance. Yeah, he, um, his wife who was Jerry Van Dyke's daughter. Uh, and I forget she was a porn star, but I forget oh, her name. Okay. She, um, she ended up hanging herself. But what had happened was like Jack Nance was on the phone with her, like trying to tell her, you know, Hey, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. And there was like an electrical storm and it cut the phones for 45 minutes. So not only did they get cut off, but he couldn't reach like a sheriff or a deputy. So like in that time she killed herself. And then Jack Nance himself, I guess, a very weird way to die in his early 40s. He was supposedly in a fight outside of Windchills and like he got, a, you know, like punched in the face. And his friend's like, what, what, what happened? It's like, ah, I guess I got what I deserved. And he died of like a subdural hematoma. The oh, next yeah, that day. can happen. Yeah. Yeah. So and then uh, the last one was uh, Peter Ivers, who we mentioned. Uh, the composer. The yeah. yeah. He was murdered and it's still an unsolved uh, mystery. Um, like bludgeoned to death. And at one point, uh, one of the suspects was Harold Ramis oh. because uh, Ivers and Ramis's wife were, um, were friends or something like that. But they, they, they there is, a, I forget the guy's name. There's like a, a, a prime suspect for this, but they, the investigation by the cops was botched so badly. They were never able to find any 
clues because of how contaminated it was. Well, that's horrifying. So thank you for all. <laughs> also, that. the kids in the hall did a sketch based on Eraserhead. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's 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 more that's nicer. I know Jack Nance. I mean, before he died, he did work with Lynch uh, on other projects. And Lynch does a lot of that, where he brings back uh, collaborators. Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, I mean, more famous people in the later part of his career, but. I mean, David Lynch also, he launched Naomi Watts's career. I mean, she she would not be famous. She would not be where she is without Mulholland Drive. I right. mean, that really made her career. And I mean, and most recent, well, I guess most recently we had that short film, but otherwise there was Twin the, the Twin Peaks third season, which I never watched. I watched the first season of Twin Peaks, not when it first aired, but sometime later on DVD, but I never stuck with it i should i've never watched any but i'd like to you know and that kind of launched kyle mclaughlin right so, yeah oh absolutely yeah. but um my favorite piece of david lynch uh lore or i would say uh on screen i'll do one on screen and one off screen. yeah on screen it has to be uh robert loggia in lost highway when the guy's tailgating him and like he chases him down and he's you know he like basically beats the shit out of this dude. You don't tailgate asshole or something like that. I don't remember. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say like Lynch's humor is kind of underrated. It's really funny. Yeah. yeah. But my favorite David Lynch story, having gone to school in Boston, I don't know if you ever heard the story you were in Amherst was that he and uh, Peter Wolf from uh, the Jay Giles band, the lead singer, the, the Wooba Gooba lead singer of the <laughs> Jay Giles band were roommates at the school of the museum of fine arts in Boston. And David Lynch kicked Peter Wolf out of their room for being too weird. Wow. He said, I can't live with you, Peter Wolf. You're too weird for me. How weird do you have to be to be too weird for David Lynch? Yeah, Josh? well, maybe he was less weird at that time. I feel like he's gotten weirder over the course of his life. I feel like he could have been inspired by the nonsensical ramblings of the Wooba Gooba. Maybe that was it. He was like, that guy's too weird. And then after he kicks him out, he started thinking, you know what? <laughs> He's Maybe I should something. be, yeah, I should be yeah. more like that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that is, that is a story. And I mean, we mentioned a little uh, Lynch as a musician too. He's put out albums yeah. and of course the music and the sound design in this movie, which he had a part in. Autobiography is uh, well-regarded. I haven't read it yet. No, but, I have um, not as either. You know, and I know uh, he doesn't, he, he, you know, we see like all these filmmakers offering master classes. I don't think he does that, but I think he does like an intensive yeah maybe something workshop. like that yeah. yeah yeah he is i mean it's it's interesting because like on the one hand he's this weird kind of aloof figure but on the other hand he seems very like genuinely friendly and interested in embracing you know young filmmakers or actors or people who are fans of his or whatever and that he's weirdly approachable in a way i think that's great you know yeah. you try to you know maintain your uh humanity within society that's a good that's a good thing okay so. that's a that's a real uh <laughs> endorsement heavy heavy way to say he's, it i just thought he was society. like friendly and nice yeah. but okay that too um speaking of music i was gonna say i feel like music videos in general have gotten a lot of inspiration from david right Lynch. Nine yeah Nine Nine stuff, Nails right? Tool, oh yeah stuff and uh back into the dark my Playmation stop motion animation music video. All right. Yeah. Everything's a plug for David his own Rosa. stuff. You ha, ha, has, was your music influenced at all by David Lynch's music? Uh, I haven't watched enough David Lynch to say, but yeah. probably. It okay. would be interesting because, you know, they released this soundtrack in, I think, 1982, the Eraserhead soundtrack. Yeah. It's got, like we said, these 40 styles pieces and Fats Waller. But I think it might also have these pops of like sound design 
mm-hmm. which are like uh, well they'd have to put something else on it because right. there isn't enough music and that would be songs. interesting you could play that against like the phil Spector wall of sound where it's also like 15 <laughs> things at once and see what the mood uh becomes yeah it's uh it's very unsettling certainly yeah uh so that's Eraserhead, and that's this episode of awesome movie year you can follow us on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Uh, the website, go for Jason um, every day. It's, you know, coming along. And then uh, <laughs> you got a whole crew, like piece by piece, laying bricks for we're, the website. We're getting there, Josh. Yeah. We're uh, awesomemovieyear.com, which is just basically our feed. Uh, and then what else do you need? That's You get the episodes. That's, that's what, right. That's what that's the people true. want. Awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram and awesome movie pod on Twitter. And Josh, before you plug yourself, can yes. I just say, besides hearing Dave's uh, mutant baby cat, we just heard a house phone ringing nonstop. What the hell is going on with the sound design here today? Dave? <laughs> it's all, it's all, so you shouldn't have mentioned it because it should be just like <laughs> unsettling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the background, like eraser head. It has been unsettling to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, I am at Josh Bell hates everything.com. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. I get to do another plug now. Uh, Piecing It Together, you could listen to anywhere you listen to this podcast and other podcasts. And check us out on social media at Piecing Pod. And Dave has a Patreon. And yeah, sign up for the Patreon. Sign up for the Patreon. Yeah. Do it all. Yeah, maybe listen we'll to some... Dave's music inspired by David Lynch. If maybe you, if you, if we get enough subscribers to Dave's Patreon, we're going to do some awesome movie year episodes. Yeah, that. yeah. Who cares about piecing it together? Subscribe to the Patreon right. to get some awesome movie. Year all content. the other stuff that's going to be on there. Yeah. Uh, what do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, I'm so excited for the next episode. Okay. Because it is a Martin Scorsese film, and it's one I haven't seen, and I love Martin Scorsese. But this is our box office bomb of 1977, the gritty musical, perhaps, we'll see, New York, New York, starring Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. That is a combo. And uh, I am also interested in seeing that. I have not either seen it, seen it either, and it'll be something to talk about. So tune in next time for New York, New York, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.